Oh, good morning, you guys. How are you doing? Uh, I did not put this here. Um, uh, thank you, whoever did. I've been many of your bosses in this room before, so I don't know who did this. I have an idea. I'm not going to say it in case I hurt someone's feelings. Um, but thank you. I do not feel, number one, like the world's best boss. I'm probably the world's worst boss right now. Um, but two, whoever gave this to me knows me well, because uh, I love coffee, and I love Michael Scott. So um, thank you. I appreciate it very much so. Um, if you guys would open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Uh, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 576, and you're going to want to flip through with me along the way. Um, man, many people have asked me uh, what I'm going to preach on today. They've been asking me this for like two months. And, uh, you know, since this is my like final sermon as your pastor, hopefully there'll be more as guest speaker or something. But um, that question has been going through my mind for a couple of months now. It's been a hard question. It's a hard thing to deal with. I mean, what do I say to the church that I love and that God gave me the privilege of planting and pastoring for seven awesome years? Um, I won't lie, I felt a lot of pressure leading up to this moment. I wrote this whole sermon out and then said, this is terrible, uh, and I'm still preaching it. So um, uh, I thought maybe I should just preach terribly, so you're like, I'm so glad that guy's leaving, you know? Um, but really, aren't final words like the most important, you know, and remembered words? Um, I've often heard of preaching equated uh, to the work of a chef, and I'm definitely no chef, but um, I've also heard of hearing God's word equated to eating, and God's word, God obviously equates his word to eating often, and like preaching, you've probably had many great meals in your lifetime, uh, but you probably remember very few of them, don't you? I don't remember very many meals. I remember a few. I remember the first time I had sushi, because it was disgusting. Uh, I remember the first time I went to American Dream, because I thought it was overrated. And uh, I'm sorry if you work at American Dream, it's fine, I still eat there. I remember the first time I ate at Sugar Shack in Huntington Beach, because it was my first date with my now wife. But really, I don't remember many other meals, and each meal, though, has been extremely important to me in my life, because uh, without those meals, I wouldn't have the nourishment that I needed to continue on in life. Every meal is important because it feeds me, it nourishes me, even if I don't remember it. I've given you many sermons here. I think I've equated maybe probably 300 sermons or so. I doubt you remember any of them. Uh, if you do, it's probably you remember some dumb illustration I gave that was maybe inappropriate. I don't know. Um, I've given a few of those. Um, or maybe a sermon here or there stuck out to you. I don't know. Uh, whether or not uh, you'll ever remember this sermon today even is beside the point because I want to feed you with what I've sought to feed you with for years. And I want to leave you with what I've sought to give you day in and day out as your pastor. I fought with all I am to give you Jesus and to point you to him. Uh, I don't want you to remember me today. I want you to remember Jesus. Uh, your Christian life, uh, this church has never been about me. And it's never been about Elizabeth or any of my kids. It's been about Jesus. And I just want to say I, I, I love you guys very much. And that feels like a huge understatement. But there is someone who loves you infinitely more, infinitely more, and he's not leaving, and he never will. Uh, he's the reason the branch exists. 
He's the one commonality that unites us all in this room. It's not our season of life that unites us. It's, it's not the university that unites us. It's not just a preference we have for church that we get to like experience here or something. It's Jesus. He's the one that is the glue that holds us together. If you take him out, things fall apart, okay? If we lose him, but we have all those other things that we like, I don't know what we have, but it's a waste of our time. Instead of just saying this to you by God's grace, I want to show you this this morning. I hope to show you this this morning. I want to show you how sufficient and necessary and glorious Jesus is. Uh, One of the ways that John in his gospel shows us this is by drawing out these critical things that Jesus reveals about himself in this thematic thread in his gospel. And uh, Mackenzie referred to them as the I am statements. Jesus says seven distinct times, I am. And then he fills in the rest of the sentence with a statement. That's a divine claim that he's making. If you think back in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, when God calls Moses to go in and lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, he's like, you know, struggling with that. And he's like, well, who should I say you are? And he says, I am who I am. I am. I am the I am. I'm the great I am. And so Jesus here is picking up on that. It's a divine claim. This isn't him just saying like, I'm like this and I'm like this. You know, like it's not the equivalent of you being like, I'm a student or, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a Leo or I'm an Arius or, you know, I'm a two or a seven or a nine or whatever your Enneagram is, you know. Um, that's not at all what these statements are because when we make those statements, we're just telling people about ourselves but really we're trying to learn about us, right? We're actually trying to discover more about ourselves. Jesus isn't discovering things about himself. He's revealing things about himself because he is these things for the world, not just for himself. These are revelations about who he is. And so as Mackenzie just read for us so well, you see it on the screen behind me, uh, just be on the graphic. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. I'm the resurrection, the life, the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. I preached through all seven of these when we started the church, if you remember way back. So I think I have like seven hours today, so buckle up. I'm just kidding. Um, But this morning, um, we'll work through these quickly. I just want to point you to Jesus, and I want you to see that he is who you need, and he is who you have. Look to him and no one else. First, he's the bread of life, John 6, 35. Look in John 6. Verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, Right before Jesus makes this startling claim, uh, if you've read this account before, you see that he just fed 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish that some boy just had for his lunch. He's pretty hungry, I guess. There are several things that Jesus is doing in this miracle when he's feeding these 5,000 people, and what he's primarily doing is he's actually making a connection to a later account earlier in your Bibles when the Israelites are wandering around the wilderness. He's making this connection between the manna that those people received in the desert and this provision that he's making with this miraculous bread and fish. He's drawing a connection. So there's this place in the book of Numbers where Moses asks God where he's going to find all this food to to give to these people who are really hungry and they're following him around in the wilderness. And it's there in that wilderness that God provides manna, which manna just simply means in Hebrew, what is it? It's like this bread that would appear on the ground every day. And God gives his people this bread from heaven. And here in verses 33 and 35, Jesus is saying, I am the bread. Jesus goes further, though, and he says that he doesn't just provide you bread from heaven. He is bread from heaven. He is the manna. 
You see, these, think, these people just think Jesus is a prophet. They even call him sir, okay? But a prophet is basically a teacher that just points you to God. But Jesus says, I don't just point you to God, I am God. Okay, I don't just produce the bread of heaven, I am the bread of heaven. I mean, well, think about it, what kind of God is this? What kind of God is this? I mean, where God comes, where He's sent, where He incarnates, and He doesn't say, hey, break your back for me. I'm God, do stuff for me. He says, I'm going to break my back for you. Feast on my life. I mean, what kind of God is this? Who can say something like this? See, when you come to Jesus in faith, that's the call, come, he says. Come to Jesus in faith. There's a feeding in your soul that comes from within. It doesn't wind down. It doesn't deplete. It doesn't decay. There is a way, you guys, to never hunger again. And Jesus even says that if you eat of this kind of bread, you won't even be thirsty again, which what kind of bread is that, right? You're not going to be thirsty if you eat this kind of bread? The meaning is, is that this bread that Jesus is is all satisfying. That's the point. Let me ask you, do you really believe this about Jesus? Do you really believe this? I'm not sure we do. I mean, it's hard to believe because everything in this life seems to leave us hungry again. We are never thoroughly and continuously satisfied by even the good stuff in this world. I mean, you return all the, all the time, right, to various kinds of barley bread, don't you? Every week, thinking it'll satisfy you. Like, you experientially know this. I mean, you thought a vacation... You thought having new goals or new strategies or a new relationship or a new hobby was the meal that you've been missing out on, and you got it, and you're like, oh, I'm still hungry again. You thought your increased income was going to fix everything. You thought exploding with anger over your kids was finally going to leave you satisfied and in a place where you could control your environment better. You thought eating right and exercising was going to solve whatever it is that you were feeling. You thought your new job was going to be the solution because you hated your old job. You thought your success and the praise that you heard in a moment that you felt ringing in your ears, you thought it was going to last forever and be the answer, and it wasn't. You're still hungry. You're hungry this morning, and Jesus knows this. He knows that the only meal that you can ever feast on that will satisfy your hunger is Him, and so God the Father sent His Son Jesus into the world so that you could have lasting food for your soul, for your soul. See, one of our greatest problems in life is that we feast on the stuff of life. We feast even on the good stuff of life, and we snack on Jesus. The call is to feast on Jesus and snack on the good stuff, and we get that out of order all the time. I, lo I love this story that um, Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s, he pastored in London. He tells this brief story um, about this woman. He said, I have heard of some old woman in a cottage who had nothing but a piece of bread and a little water. And lifting up her hands, she said as a blessing, what, all this, and Christ too? I love that. All this, a piece of bread, a glass of water, all this, and Christ too? I love that. Jesus says, guys, come to me, only me, and be satisfied forever. Secondly, he says, I'm the light of the world. Look over in John chapter 8, verse 12. What does he say? Again, Jesus spoke to them right after the, the woman who's caught in adultery, that story says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Darkness is disorienting, isn't it? It causes you to see things that aren't there. 
right? Or to not see things that are there. We don't see clearly, we don't see truthfully unless someone comes and flips on a light switch or lights a match. And we know this, every single time that light enters into a dark place, it casts out the darkness, doesn't it? I mean, no one's ever like lit a flame in a pitch black room and the darkness is like, sorry, flame, we're better than you. You know, like the light just always casts out the darkness every single time. A small light, even in an extremely dark place, has a powerful influence on your perspective. And God knows this, God created this, God has consistently given light to his people, even just consider just a few of these various moments that God gave light to his people. Do you guys even know, what are the first words that God ever said in the Bible? Or really in all of time, what are the first words? You know this? Let there be light, right? It's a fun Bible quiz now for you, isn't it? The first thing he ever said in the world was let there be light. It's the first thing God ever said. God led his people in the wilderness by a pillar of blazing fire at night. When it was dark out, they didn't know where to go, and they needed to follow where God was leading them. He led them by light. We even are told that Scripture says that God dwells in unapproachable light. And yet here, Jesus is putting himself in a whole other category. He doesn't just tell you where to find the light. He doesn't just tell you that he dwells in light. He actually provides light for anyone who follows him. That's the call is to follow him. Jesus' light is not the kind of light that you just see and you go, wow, that's beautiful. That's not the kind of light that he is. He's the kind of light that you follow because he says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. I I don't know if you you guys ever gone on like night hiking before. Anyone ever done that, night hiking? Anybody? Okay, a few crazy people in here. It's great. Um, Have you ever um, gone night hiking without a flashlight? I mean, we don't even... You're awesome, man, okay? I mean, we don't even go to the bathroom when we camp without a flashlight, you know what I mean? Like, but people go hiking at night without a flashlight. Um, I've actually done that before, so I'm a guilty as charged here. Um, but if a group of friends go night hiking together, let's just say you only have one flashlight, who gets the flashlight? It's the guy in front, right? Or lady in front, whatever, right? It's the person in front. Everyone else follows that person. Even if you pass the light to somebody else in the back of the line, people are going to reconfigure the line, aren't they? So they're like, well, I don't know what's ahead. I don't, I don't want to trip over something. I don't want to get hit by some, you know, like blackberry bush or something like that, right? You reconfigure the line even. People don't like walking in the dark in the woods at night unless you're a special person. Jesus says that whoever follows him won't walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And when we follow him, it's not that he has the light, and someone passed it to him, and he's just at the front of the line, just because he was courageous enough to go there. No, it's that he is the light. He is light. If Jesus is the light, then the darkness in this world, then, is anything that's not of him. If he's light, then anything that's not of him is darkness. And so, in this world, there are things that look true to you, but they're a lie. There are things that are true, but you just can't see it right now. Jesus is saying, if you want to see clearly, if you want to know the way, if life is disorienting or confusing, follow the light. So the question here this morning is, do you love the light? I mean, do you actually love light? Do you love it? Uh, Plato once said, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark. The real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. It's absolutely true. 
Guys, Jesus is leading us towards a day where there will be nothing other than light. We just sang about it, which is gloriously amazing if you love light, but if you hate the light and you love the darkness, you won't like where Jesus is leading you. Revelation 21 ends in this way. It says, and the city that we're all going to live in one day with God, it says, has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. It's Jesus. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. Guys, we are headed towards a day of light, and Jesus the Lamb is our lamp. We follow Him. He lights our path in those moments where we feel surrounded by darkness. See, Jesus says to you this morning, follow me and only me. Don't follow anybody else. Follow me, and you will never walk in darkness. Thirdly, we see he's the door. John 10, flip over to John 10. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's saying he's the entrance into the flock of God, into the people of God. If you want to be part of the people of God, you've got to go through Jesus. When Jesus says that he's the door of the sheep, he's making a startling claim about himself. He's saying that the only way to be a part of God's people is through him. He's the door through which you must enter in order to receive the green pasture, in order to receive the protection and the care of God. And notice he doesn't say he's a door. He's the door, right? There are not many paths or many doors to God. There's a single door to God, and that door is Jesus. This is a really powerful illustration when you consider what happened back at the beginning of your Bible? In Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? We see in Genesis 3, it says, the Lord sent them out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They sinned in God's perfect world. They were in this garden with God. Their sin enters the world. God casts them out and guards the way for them to get back through. Why? Well, you might think God was being mean. He was actually being gracious because if they had taken of that fruit of the tree, sin would be a part of our reality for all of eternity. But God in his holiness and his goodness guards the gate to that tree. He says, you cannot come back in. I will not tolerate sin for all eternity. But what is Jesus saying here then? Through Jesus, we have a way back in, don't we? We have a way back. That's what this image he's giving you is meant to stir up. Jesus is saying, you must go through me to get life. If you want pasture in the field of the Lord, right, the gateway is Jesus. Therefore, hear me very clearly this morning. Hear me very clearly. Avoiding Jesus in your life is not life, it's death. Avoiding Jesus is not life. You might think it is for a time, but it's death. He's the door. I'm just think if you found out that you were really sick and a doctor was like, hey, we got a pill for that, you know? You could just take this pill, you know, for one time. And you're like, I don't know. I'm just going to figure out a different way, you know? I'm going to find some oils and change my diet and do whatever it is. You know what I mean? And they're like, I'll just go with that. Oh, I'll figure out my different door, you know, to being healthy again. It, you would be like, come on, just take the pill, right? Take the pill. 
Or if you were too prideful, you're like, I'm not sick. You're one of those people, you know, like, I'm not sick, I'm fine, right? You're, you're not leading yourself to life, you're leading yourself to death, right? Avoiding the medicine isn't life, it's death. But if you want salvation, you must have Jesus. No one else can save you. No one else can say that to you. No person in this world can say that to you. If you want salvation, no one else can save you but Jesus. Even if you think they can, even if they promise that to you, they can't do that. This is why Peter says in Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's the door. He's a huge, wide door, but he's the only way in. No one else can save you. Fourthly, he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd. John 10, just two verses later, what does he say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is the door into the sheep pen, but he's also the shepherd of the sheep that are inside the protected fence, right, that the door gives access to. So Jesus is here, he has a few hats, doesn't he? Right, he should win like an Oscar for this, you know? He's, he's all these kind of hats he's wearing, you know, this is amazing. But what does this even mean that he's the good shepherd for you? What does that even mean? Uh, well, in most things, background always enriches the present. If you know the background, it always enriches the present. Just for example, if you said to me today, Josh, I, I finally signed a contract to have this book that I've been working on published by this amazing, prominent publishing house, I would go, wow, that's awesome. Like, congratulations. That's great, right? That'd be amazing if that was you today. If that's you, tell me that, please. I'd love to hear that, okay? But secondarily, if I knew how often in your life, all along to, up to that moment, people have said to you, you'll never be an author. You're a terrible writer, right? No one's going to read your book. Like, if I knew all along the way that you had sent out your manuscripts to all these different publishing companies, and they're like, no one would ever read this. We're not going to publish it. That would bring a joyful weight to that announcement when you tell me that, won't it? I know your background. You telling me that your book's going to be published, there's a joyful weight that comes with that statement. The same is true here when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, if you don't know your Bible. So, just really briefly, this image of shepherd, it's extremely prominent throughout the Bible, and we see Again, Genesis 4, the first shepherd in the Bible shows up, and his name is Abel. Abel takes care of sheep, and he offers sacrifices pleasing to God, but then he's murdered by his brother. So, the first shepherd in the Bible is murdered, okay? Then, from then on, Abraham to Moses, all these patriarchs, they're all shepherds. So, God has chosen to, t to call out shepherds and to use them to be a blessing to his world, from Abraham to Moses, Right? We see that shepherds take care of sheep until we get to the end of Genesis, where Jacob says for the very first time, the God whom before my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life to this day. So Jacob sees God as his shepherd. It's the very first time that you see God equated as a shepherd in the Bible, and that'll be the most prominent use of this word from here on out, that shepherds shepherd people, okay? So now Moses, we see he takes care of sheep. This is what he's doing when God calls him. We get to the Mosaic Covenant that God gives people shepherds because people without a shepherd are a huge, um, in a huge uh, area of weakness and, and, and need and vulnerability. 
You go all the way up to the life of David, who's a shepherd king. He's out in the field watching sheep when he's called to be king, right? He's another shepherd. Then we see David write Psalm 23 that describes God as his shepherd, shepherding him through the ups and downs of life and everywhere in between. Then you get to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, where we see that God tends his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. We see God is a shepherd, you guys. But then we see that God delegates his shepherd role to under shepherds. And if you read your Bibles, you see over the ages, those shepherds fail miserably. They use their position of power amongst the people of Israel to oppress people. They use their position for their own gain. And nothing makes God more angry than that. And so what does God say in Ezekiel 34? Verse 23, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. David's already dead. Who's he talking about? Who's that going to be? Well, Jesus is being very clear to you here. I am the good shepherd. I'm, I'm the one. What does it mean to be a good shepherd? What does this good shepherd do? Does he oppress you? Does he use you for his own gain? What does this good shepherd do in your life? What does he do? He lays his life down for the sheep. I was talking to Cassette, you take care of animals, so you might understand this. We don't get, I mean, think about it. Sheep are cute, right? But sheep are like, they're not as important as the shepherd, are they? Jesus, the Son of God, laying his life down for me? Like, that's, that doesn't make any sense. This is perplexing, isn't it? Why would a shepherd die for sheep? Because he's a good shepherd. That's what defines him for being a good shepherd. Jesus is a perplexingly good shepherd. He lays his life down for the sheep, and he will never stop shepherding you because the Bible climaxes in Revelation 7, 17, saying, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Guys, the slaughtered lamb is the shepherd. Isn't this beautiful? Gosh, I mean, Elizabeth Elliot uh, famously said, love is always inextricably bound with sacrifice. It's always bound with sacrifice. God, guys, he, he loves you. He's given his life for you. Who else does that kind of thing? I mean, if your shepherd laid down his life for you and won't lose you, but will always care for you, he will always protect you and watch over you, then can't we trust him through anything that he's leading us through? I mean, can't we trust him? What about you? I mean, you probably did this as a kid. Our, our kids do this, but, you know, they'll ask us for things, you know, and, and being a good parent, we're like, sorry, you can't have that. You know, our kids will often ask us to watch movies way beyond a rating that's appropriate for them or something, okay? And we say, sorry, you can't watch that. You know, and they're like, well, why? And we're like, well, you know, you're trying to explain it to them or whatever, right? We're holding out on them. They don't understand it, though. They don't see it yet. This, is, this has been the way it is, right? And so I, my, our kids have never actually said this to us, I don't think, maybe behind our backs. But if one of our kids said to us, you don't love me because you won't let me watch that movie or something like that, 
I, I could take a really deep breath and be like, you know, process, you know, just say the right thing. But then I would inevitably say, like, you have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean I don't love you? Do you know all the things that I've done for you? Do you know how I pray for you? You know all the things I've, like, given up in my life? I've given up a lot of sleep, you know? Like, there's a, I, could, I could go on, out to more movies or watch more, you know, like, go out to more dinner, whatever it is. Like, I've given up so many things for you. That's not a burden to me, though. That's a joy to me. Why? Because I love you. Like, I would say that as a parent. My holding out on them, even if they don't understand it. They don't need to question my goodness, do they? If they know that I love them. Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd because I laid out my life for my sheep. That's what defines me as good. And so I love it when Martin Luther famously said, I know not the way God leads me, but well do I know my guide. I don't know where he's taking me, but I know my guide. He's a good shepherd. And as a sheep, I don't, I don't need to know the destination. I don't need to know each turn, every pasture, every mountain or valley that I'm led down. I just need to follow the care of my shepherd. Guys, don't doubt the goodness of Jesus in your life and his care for you. Fifth, he's the resurrection and the life, John 11. Go to John 11, the story of Lazarus. John 11, we see verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus makes this claim about himself as he's confronted with Mary and Martha, two people he's really close to. Their brother Lazarus has died. They deeply loved their brother. Jesus loved their brother too. And we even see that Jesus weeps outside of Lazarus' tomb. And so they come to Jesus thinking that he could have saved their brother from death, but he delayed in showing up. So Martha's angry. Mary is crushed with sadness. What they didn't know was that Jesus was actually directed by his father to not save Lazarus from death so that everyone would know that Jesus has power over death. He makes this claim that those who believe in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Anyone who believes in him will never die. He makes it right before he calls Lazarus out of the grave to prove this claim. That's what's happening here. That even if you die, you will live. If you believe in Jesus, like really live, like starting now before all eternity. You're going to really live. Not, you're not just going to live on in someone's heart when you die. You're not going to live on in someone's dreams or their memories. You're going to live on on God's gloriously green earth, right? Called Oregon. You're going to do that someday. Uh, I, recently, um, Stephen Colbert was interviewing Keanu Reeves. I don't know if you saw this. Um, but at the end of this interview, Stephen Colbert asked him a question that I, I think he, he thought was going to be a funny question because Keanu Reeves is such an interesting person. And so he asks him this question, Keanu Reeves, he starts with his name, Keanu Reeves, what do you think happens when you die? And like everyone kind of laughs, but Keanu Reeves is really serious, so it kind of dials down, you know, and gets quiet. And Keanu Reeves says, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. And one lady goes, woo, you know, and it was just quiet. It was just quiet beyond that one lady, for whatever reason, she felt like she needed to do that. It's a, that's a really good statement, isn't that? It was powerful. It's a good quote, isn't it? The ones that love us will miss us. That's true. But it's completely incomplete, isn't it? It's the thought that we, we live on just in the memories of those who love us, but that's incomplete. Jesus doesn't just say that he has resurrection power. 
but that he is the resurrection and the life. Life meaning eternal life that begins today. Therefore, whoever believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. So how, how, do, you, how do you get access to this resurrection? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it's actually very interesting because the word believe in, in, this, uh, in Greek, in the, in the Gospels, whenever you see that, most commonly as it is here, the word in is actually the word into. So it should say really believe into Jesus, which is weird, so that's why we don't translate it that way. But believing into something is different than believing in something. That's why it's written this way. You're actually to believe into Jesus. So it's like union language. It's kind of like this. It's the difference about between like you going, wanting to go skydiving or you're curious about going skydiving. You're like, well, walk me through the process. And like, well, you put this parachute on your back, you jump out of the plane, you open the parachute, it safely gets you back to earth. You know, do you think that is true? Do you think that'll happen? You're like, yeah, I believe it'll get me, you know, I think the parachute will open, it'll get me back safe to earth, you know? I could say I believe that that'll happen. I believe in it, right? But if I believe into that, I actually get in the plane and I jump out of the plane, don't I? That's what it means to believe into something, is to put the parachute on my back and actually jump out of the plane. I'm believing into it. That's what that means. This is literally the best news that we could ever hear. Believing in Jesus, guys, changes everything in your life. It changes your worst-case scenario. That's what it does. For most of us, if we were to ask, what's the worst thing that could happen to you in your life? You might say death, okay? Does that mean the end of anything else? Hopefully, you would say separation from God for all eternity. But now, no matter what we're going through, if you believe into Jesus, this is your new bottom line. So, what's the worst thing that could ever happen to you now? What's the worst thing? That Jesus is your resurrection in life. That's literally the worst thing that could ever happen to you anymore. It changes your bottom line. You won't live on just into the minds of your loved ones. You will live forever no matter what happens to you. You guys, we may live in the same town again someday together. We, we, we may be in the same church together again someday. But even if we aren't, we will all live together again with our Savior in the new heavens and new earth because He is our resurrection and life. This is your new bottom line. This is your new worst-case scenario. Though you die, you will live. Six, he's the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus as the door gets you into the family of God. It gets you into the flock. Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life brings you home into the Father's arms. This I am statement, it's produced in the middle of this conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. He tells them that he's going away to prepare a place for them in his father's house where there's many rooms. And Thomas asks him, Jesus, how can we know the way? We don't know where you're going. What do you mean your father's house where there's many rooms? How do you know how to get there? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't get to the father's house except through me. So this is telling you that Jesus is the pathway that leads to a truthful rich life with God as your father. It's changing your relationship with God now. He is, in fact, life. So, therefore, to not have the I am, Jesus, is to not have life. To not have the I am is to not have the way and, therefore, to be lost. To not have the I am is to not have the truth and, therefore, to live a lie. To not have the I am is to not know God as your father. But if you have Jesus... 
If you believe in him, he doesn't give you a map to God. He doesn't say, I'll tell you the directions. Just punch this into your Apple Maps or something. He doesn't give you a playbook saying, just run these plays. You'll probably win the game. We'll see. He says, you get to have the Father. You get to have God as your Father if you have me, if you believe in me. Through Jesus, you get God as your Father. This is a completely transformed relationship, and there's nothing like it on the planet. Just think about it. Every relationship that you have with people, every religious system in the world, that's telling you how to get right with God. Every time you screw up in your life, what do you think about? You think, oh my gosh, I messed up. So-and-so's gonna kill me. This might be the end of our relationship. I screwed up. If you're trying to get right with God, you're like, man, I screwed up, I messed up, God is going to kill me. That's what you're thinking all the time. If you have Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, how does that change your relationship with God? If God is now your Father, means that when you mess up, you go, I really messed up. I need to call dad. That changes everything. Your thoughts don't go to, God's going to kill me. You go, I need to go home. I need to go running home. Through Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way into our Father's arms. And seventh, he is the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches, John 15, 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. This is our church's name, right? It's fitting, this is the last point of the sermon I'll give here, right? We find that vines are a common picture throughout the Bible. And every time God is comparing his people to a vine or a vineyard, and he's accusing them of being fruitless, it's what you almost always see. This picture comes up all the time when you read your Old Testament. And God's always accusing them of being fruitless, of failing to be what he expects them to be. They couldn't live up to it. They couldn't do it. Yet now, Jesus makes clear how his people can and will bear fruit. It's through first being united to him by faith, which is what all these other statements have been talking about but it's in communing with him. It's abiding with him. He's the true vine. That's why he says true vine, not just a vine. He's the true one. He's the only one who could ever do it. He says, you are the branches. I am the true vine. You can do nothing apart from me. Like literally nothing. Nothing that is life, that's for sure. In other words, you are completely and utterly dependent upon Jesus if you hope to come alive and bear any type of fruit that has some eternal value that brings him any weight of glory. This is a statement of dependence, you guys, isn't it? You are utterly dependent upon God. Uh, we've had uh, quite a few new babies this year in the branch, right? A lot of new babies, as opposed to old babies, but new babies this year. Um, the cuteness has gone through the roof, I must say. No offense to you if you've been here for a while and you thought you were pretty cute or something, but um, it's beautiful to see. And I don't know about you, but one of the things I love about seeing a newborn with their parents is, yeah, they're adorable, but I love that image of dependence. I mean, that baby can do nothing, right? A child with their parents is the perfect picture of dependence. They can't, like, go to the well, they can go to the bathroom, but they can't change their diaper or anything, right? They can't eat, they can't, they can't do anything, can they? 
They were completely and utterly dependent upon the care of their mom and dad. More their mom. Their dad helps too, right? (laughs) Right? This This is what we see here. And Jesus is saying, you are dependent upon me in a much even more profound way than that. And he says in uh, verse 11 of 15, our dependence upon him, what does it do? It culminates in us experiencing his joy, not my joy, his joy in us, and that joy being full, like abundant. J.C. Ryle said, to be truly happy, a man must have sources of gladness which are not dependent on anything in this world. If you're going to be truly happy, you have to have sources of gladness which are not dependent on any source in this world. That's John 15 right there. That's John 15, 11. Our union with Christ, it produces a gladness that's not found in this world, guys. True life, true joy, real fruit, only found in Jesus. We are truly dependent upon him. We don't abide in anyone else. No matter how great you think someone is, no matter how wonderful of an impact someone's made on your life. This, is, this has actually been really painful in my life this year, and God has, God has used this transition to show me this. Just that feeling of not wanting to leave and, and being like, well, I don't want to say goodbye to so-and-so or whatever it is. But God's graciously shown me, and hopefully he's showing you, that these times in our lives, he uses departure as his grace in our lives to remind us that we abide in Jesus and no one else. I often uh, cut roses off our rose bush and I put them in a vase for Elizabeth. I'm, I'm so romantic, right? Yeah. Um, and her love language is not spending money, so that's yeah, good. Uh, that's not one of the five. That's not one of the five. It's number six, whatever. Um, but let me tell you something. Every rose I've ever cut off, put in the vase, it's never survived. It's for a little while. It looks pretty for a while, but what happens? It withers and dies, doesn't it? Every single time. This is not rocket science, is it? Why? Because it needs to be connected to the bush, right? It needs to draw its life from that vine. Its life is dependent on it. It's dependent upon abiding in that vine. And you and I think that what Jesus is saying here just isn't true for you for some reason, and it's absolutely true, and it always will be. You can do nothing apart from him. You can cut yourself off for a while. You can put yourself in a vase. You can kind of look pretty for a little bit, like life's great. Eventually, it'll wither. Eventually, it won't work. It's true for us. He's the vine. Guys, these seven statements they culminate in this great one here that Jesus is our vine. They're all climaxing here. It's all about our union to him. This is where the Bible's been heading all along, actually. And it's where our lives are meant to head and to meet. I mean, you even see this. Adam, in the garden, he ate the forbidden fruit. What did it do? It brought death. The eating of the bread of Jesus' life, it brings life. His eating brought death. Eating Jesus brings life. Adam's sin brings darkness into our hearts, into the world. Jesus brings the light. Adam's disobedience earned us banishment from the garden of God's pasture. Its way was blocked forever. Jesus' obedience comes as the door to the eternal garden of God. Adam's disobedience brought into the world oppression, using others for your own gain, hatred, and murder. Just watch the news. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. 
Adam's disobedience brought death into the world. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Adam's disobedience brought lostness and lies. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Adam's fall brought a curse to the earth. And Jesus, you guys, he's the flourishing vine. You guys, if these I am statements show you anything, they at minimum show you that you should not put your hope in anyone or anything other than Jesus. Every other person will fail you at some point. Whatever it is that you anchor into to provide hope or stability for yourself, it'll prove weak and faulty eventually. Guys, if there has been anything good in our lives from being a part of this church together for seven years, just being honest with you, that's not me, and it's not you. It's Jesus. How do I know that? He's the vine. He's all these things. I'm not these things. You're not these things. If there's anything good we've ever had here, it's because of him. We're celebrating him today. That's what we're doing. We celebrate him every Sunday. That's why we gather. I get up at 5 a.m. every Sunday to get ready for our gathering. You're often very sound asleep. Uh, college students, you're probably asleep for five more hours. But um, I get up at 5 a.m. every Sunday to get ready. Uh, let me tell you, I get to see some really sweet sunrises and a lot of really cloudy, gloomy days too. But some mornings are really sweet sunrises. This morning's was epic. It was epic. Like, I can't even describe it to you. There was no cloud in the sky. It was completely clear. And the sunset was so bright. It was like fully pink, but like fully orange. I don't even know what color it was. God was just like showing off, you know? He was like, what's this one, you know? It was amazing. Now, here's the thing. I can describe for you the sunrise. And you can go, oh, that's cool. You know, maybe I'll see that someday. It might make you interested. But in all actuality, sunrises aren't meant to be described, are they? They're meant to be experienced. It would have been better if you just woke up with me and you went outside. And then we could just celebrate it together. I don't just want to tell you this morning that Jesus is amazing and that he's who you need. I don't just want to tell you that. I want us now to wake up and go outside every day and experience the sunrise. He is these things. Hear his voice every moment, like this moment, saying to you, come to me and be satisfied. Stop going other places. Follow me. I'm the light. Follow me. Enter by me. I'm the door. Receive my sacrificial care. Don't doubt my goodness. Believe into me. Come home to the Father. Abide in me. I'm home. I'm where you're meant to be. Hear his call every day. See and savor the goodness of Jesus. Guys, we need him, and we are his, and he is yours. We might not know the way God leads us, but well do we know our God. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we worship you this morning. God, we celebrate you, God, and all that you've done in our lives. And we look ahead to all the amazing things you're going to continue to do, Lord, because we know that as we abide in you, Lord, we bear fruit. Your grace explodes into our lives and into our cities. So, God, I pray that we would 
moment by moment, just hear your voice saying, come, come to me, come to me, and may we come to you, God. Just teach us how to come to you. May we long for you, God. In Christ's name I pray, amen.